welcome back to Mission 150. We're so glad to have you with us again. If you're watching on YouTube or you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, don't forget to press subscribe so that you don't miss any of our content. I'm David Trim. I'm Director of Archives, Statistics and Research for the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. And I'm Sam Nevis, Associate Director of Communication. Today, we're going to talk about Mission to the West Indies. David, we've talked about Mission to Europe. We talked about Mission to Africa, Mission to Asia. And now let's talk about the Americas, so the West Indies. Where does that term come from in the first place? So, Sam, West Indies comes from the mistake that Christopher Columbus made when he first arrived in the New World, the first European, of course, not the first person, but the first European explorer to reach the New World, reached one of the islands in the Caribbean Sea, but thought he'd reached the Indies, by which he meant India or what we would today call Indonesia or the Philippines. And so once people worked out that, in fact, this was a new world, they developed the term East Indies, for Asia right. and West Indies for the islands of the Caribbean so Sea. The East India Company, that's, that's right, probably the famous, where that comes from. Right, that famously was the British tool of colonization in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, but just to complicate matters, the West Indies doesn't only mean the islands in the Caribbean Sea, it's often used for three European colonies on the South American mainland, what today are called Guyana, French Guyana, and Suriname. Uh, so Which, that, is, that is part of the West Indies. That they're usually thought okay. of as part of the West Indies, but otherwise well, the West Indies are the islands in the Caribbean as distinct from the mainland of, say, the Inter-American Peninsula of Mexico and then the small countries that go down before you reach the South, America, co- South American continent proper. Okay. So well, the West Indies is that region of the islands of the Caribbean plus those small territories on the north shore, as it were, of South America. Last week, we talked about the Gold Coast, the West Africa coast, being very deadly, full of disease and complications and and being very difficult. And we talked about a couple of missionaries that went both to West Africa and to the West Indies. That's right. So let's dive into the West Indies. How did we first send missionaries there? How was the work there? Was it as deadly as Africa? It is. It is quite deadly. because the islands of the Caribbean, even though they're very close to the United States, are also home to many virulent fevers and tropical diseases, including yellow fever, which one Adventist church leader described rather grimly as he described yellow fever as that dread scourge of the tropics of the Western Hemisphere. And yellow fever, as we will see today, killed quite a number of Adventist missionaries. Mm. But it's what's also interesting is that The Adventist church in the West Indies, as in Europe and West Africa, actually started not with the missionaries, but with local converts who were won by reading Adventist literature. So Adventists, the International Tract Society, which was responsible for literature evangelism outside the United States, its leaders will buy up large packets of tracts, pamphlets, magazines, Adventist materials, and give them to captains of ships, of merchant ships that are sailing to foreign ports and say, when you get there, would you please distribute these? That's very clever. Well, you, you do wonder how many sea captains just simply tossed them into the sea and they were never seen again. But we know that it worked because there were a number of converts, including in Barbados, uh, a British colony in the eastern edge of the West Indies, 
Um, and so the local people get converted by reading literature. What also happens in the West Indies, which didn't happen in other parts of the world, is that American coal porters come through. Uh, they, this also happens in Inter-America and South America because it's, the distance is close. Mm -hmm. So trying to go to Africa or Europe, it's, it's prohibitive in cost. But trying to go through the islands of the Caribbean, Inter-America, that's quite practicable. So you have American literature evangelists who go through. Now, they don't stay and they're not funded by the church. They're self-supporting. They're supporting by the literature that they sell. So they bring the books with them. They arrive on an island. They yep. go door to door. They try to sell those books. Yes. And then if they haven't sold all of it, they move to the next island. Exactly. And then they, they go back to America, pick up more books. And then go out again. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So these are lay people. They're doing a good work. But what happens is that the people who get converted by reading the Adventist literature, I should say, want missionaries to come because they read it and they say, there's more truth here. We want to know more. And we also want a pastor because these are most in the West Indies. These are Christian islands already on the whole. Uh, not so much in the mainland where you have Guyana and French Guyana and Suriname. You've mm -hmm. got people who follow traditional animist religions there. But in the islands themselves, people are already Christian, so they want a pastor. So they appeal to church leaders in America, please send us missionaries. I but see, they, uh, the, mm -hmm. the presence is already there thanks to Adventist literature. I see, a, I see a trend here in a connection with what we do today, because whenever new technologies come, David, and, and you've seen this and you've studied this, there is a tendency by some very well-meaning innovators that this new technology will finish the work in uh, a way that we've never seen before. Right. And it will reach everybody in the world. But media, it's just the entering wedge. It's just the way that the Holy Spirit talks to people. What happens immediately after is that people want community. They want some kind of, of leadership in that sense. They want to be able to ask questions. They're looking for relationships, not just more knowledge or a different knowledge in that sense. So we've seen this. Now in the, in, you know, 100 and, and 120 years ago or so, I, I guess that's the time period we're describing, right? But we see this today in the same way. We reach people through social media. We reach people through television. And soon enough, what do they want? They want a community. They want right. a relationship. They right. want to write and they are, and they want us to write back to them. So there is always this relationship with new media that it's going to proclaim it to everyone. But no, what people need is relationships. And if we go all the way back to 1872, which we discussed on an earlier podcast, in 1868, Adventists in America discover that there are Seventh-day Sabbath keepers in Europe. Mm -hmm. And initially, th there is an appeal made by the Seventh-day Sabbath keepers of Europe for help, but initially it's for money. Okay. And that doesn't go anywhere. Right. What, when things change is when they say, we want an American messenger. You might recall we talked mm -hmm. about this yeah, right back in yeah, the yeah. second episode, I think it was. We want an American messenger. We want an actual person to come here to lead us. And that appeal is so moving that Adventists it, it break, can't help but respond, and it breaks the logjam of those 11 years in which the church refused to do foreign mission. Because precisely of what you say, it's, it's not enough to know that there is a, another community of Seventh-day Adventists on the other side of the ocean from us. We want that sense of community. I think you've des described it exactly right. And so this is why, you know, it, when radio started with HMS Richards and, and others in the 1930s, this was going to be the thing that would take the message everywhere. Then it was television. And 
Now it's digital evangelism. Yes. Um, all of these things do can and do reach people, but then the people themselves want to know other people. They don't want to just have a connection with a voice or a, or a figure that's on a screen. That's right. They want to have that, that because the power of the Holy Spirit exists through loving relationships. It right. cannot be devoid of that. Right. So and do they send people or? They do. They do. And the first people that they send is in 1890, November 20, 1890, Dexter Ball and his wife Martha and their young daughter Myrtle disembarked in Bridgetown, Barbados, the first official Adventist missionaries to an island of the Caribbean. The ball settled in Bridgetown and they began work. And in September 1891, the first Seventh-day Adventist church on the island was organized. And I was fortunate enough to go to Barbados in October of 2016 for the 125th anniversary of the founding of that first Seventh-day Adventist church. And I was okay. fortunate enough to, to visit and be a speaker for a, a commemorative service. Wow. And today the church in Barbados is flourishing and growing exponentially. I spoke to a, a congregation of around five or 6,000. Really? All of that, though, comes from initially literature evangelism and then from missionaries who go there. That's amazing. The problem was that Dexter became seriously ill, and in 1892, less than two years after they've gone, they have to return to the United States in order to save Dexter's life, basically. Which is a common theme, as you right. know, it, it's becoming very common in our conversations that they go within a couple of years if they're lucky. Right. And we're going to see that again in today's episode. But the, the, the beautiful thing is that several of Pastor Ball's converts became lay missionaries to other islands of the Caribbean. One of them, Charles Adamson, at the request of church leaders, went to work in Trinidad, in, in uh, a large island near the coast of South America. Today has a flourishing economy because of oil. Even then was one of the most significant islands. It had a, it had a substantial economy. So Charles Adamson a lay convert of Ball in Bridgetown goes to Trinidad as a self-supporting evangelist, and he had a degree of success. He builds up a group of believers, and again, there's the request to send an ordained minister to Trinidad so that they can have a pastor. There you go. There may have been a lack of volunteers, because in the end, they don't send an ordained minister. They send a ministerial licentiate, somebody who holds a ministerial license, which is sort of a trainee minister, mm -hmm. a man called Andrew Flowers. But they then ordain him <laughs> so that they can send him. But So maybe there weren't ordained ministers queuing up to go to Trinidad. We don't. That's a bit, little bit of supposition. But they send Andrew Flowers with his wife, Rachel, and they landed in Port of Spain, the capital of Trinidad, in February 1894. He had been a coal porter for many years in addition to three years of being a pastor and evangelist. Rachel had been involved in literature evangelism herself, and she actively supported Andrew's ministry. A colleague later recalled that Andrew's flowers was a pleasant and kindly man, beloved by all who knew him, which are, of course, important characteristics for a missionary. He's a good person to send. Yeah. And they started working enthusiastically, but they faced considerable hostility in Port of Spain. What is this new American religion? Why do we need oh, this? I see. Which uh, means that they were, they were making quite some noise because you don't have resistance if you're not having an impact. It's a good point. But what they did was to switch their focus to a place called Cuba, which is on the west coast of Trinidad. And there they found what they, they wrote back and said, we've found a few believers already rejoicing in the truth thanks to the efforts of Adamson. 
mm. who we just we just talked about. Right, and right. soon they had 20 to 25 people regularly attending Sabbath services, and the first Seventh-day Adventist church in Trinidad would be organized in Coover. But sadly, Andrew Flowers didn't live to see the fruit of his labors. Another missionary to the Eastern Caribbean recalled, I'm quoting, he was stricken with that dread disease of the tropics, yellow fever or yellow jack, as it is termed locally. He suffered for five days. And according to an eyewitness to his suffering, I'm quoting again, as he began to realize that his end was near, he said, it's all right. Wow. And he died on July 29, 1894. So less than six months after he'd arrived. You don't, you don't get to experience peace in your last moments without a life that is focused and dedicated to that mm. hope. It, it just doesn't happen. You know, as a pastor, you, you experience people in their last days, in their first days, in their last days. You know, as a pastor, you're exposed to that. And, and that kind of peace does not come naturally. No. Uh, it, and it is the result of, of, a, of a solid faith that, that he's lived by, certainly. A deep connection with the Holy yeah, Spirit. That's right. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Here he is dying after only six months. It's all right. Who could, the Holy Spirit, who could cure him? Yes. But he's deciding yeah. not to. Yes. And that's still all right. It's still all right. It's, it's, it's amazing. It is. You know, and this is, this is the level of faith of early Adventist missionaries. You know, it, it literally sends a shiver up my spine when I read these things. And that sense of saying, you know, of whom we are not worthy, <laughs> as Hebrews think, puts it. Do you think that kind of faith they had before they left? Or is it a result of the attention and the focus on mission? That's a great question. And it's hard to know the answer. Sure. Um, I think they wouldn't have gone, they wouldn't have been willing to make that big commitment to leave their homeland, to go somewhere, knowing that they mightn't come back mm. because they know that these diseases are out there and they know that if you're going, you may not ever return. So I think people who are willing to make that commitment and that sacrifice, even if it's just the sacrifice of leaving your loved ones for a substantial amount of time, people who are willing to do that must already have some sort of sense of connection with the Holy Spirit. But I think it's also a gift. I think that kind of peace is a gift of the Holy Spirit to people in their last days. Mission is always comes with sacrifice even today. So yeah. it's a, it, there is still a call to leave your home and dedicate your life to other people, not knowing right. when and if you're going to come back. That's still the case today. That's right. You're, you're, le- you're not likely to die, though it still does happen occasionally. Mm-hmm. But you're likely to survive. And t- but you're leaving your family, you're leaving your friends, you're leaving your familiar culture, going somewhere new. It is a sacrifice, even today, yeah. in the era of jet travel where you can be anywhere within a couple of days. Yeah. Okay, so we, we've got a, a, a two places in Barbados. It's like I'm going through the New Testament, David. You say there was some believers and then they went somewhere else. There, yes. There is a, uh, an action of the Holy Spirit that, is, that, is, that can be seen in our history. Yes. In any given location, as we do in the book of Acts. But they have two, two sets now, I, I think, if I understood right. correctly. And they've also, by this time, they've also sent missionaries to Jamaica. Okay. Uh, Jamaica, for whatever reason, is, is a healthier climate. It doesn't suffer as much from yellow fever, and the missionaries in Jamaica do better. But so you've got now, you've got missionaries in Jamaica, you've got believers in Barbados and some other islands, you've got Well, after Andrew's death, you've got one missionary, his wife Rachel in Trinidad. And Rachel herself, was as another missionary writes, says she was prostrate with fever and unable to attend her husband's funeral. 
But she doesn't die. She's able to return to the United States where she makes a recovery. But she wasn't disillusioned by this. When she gets back to the States, she writes a, a, publishes an article in the Review and Herald, the church's paper, and she urges that more workers be sent to Trinidad. And the following year, having regained her health, she went to Guadalajara, Mexico, where she served as a missionary for two years. So you'd think somebody after the experience of losing their husband might say, right, you know, never again. I've done my bit. Right. But she goes to Mexico as one of the first missionaries to, to Mexico. Wow. Do you know if they had children? They didn't. Okay. That, that's my understanding. Mm-hmm. But it gets even better mm. because she wrote, feeling a great burden for the work in the islands and her health being somewhat improved, she returned to Trinidad. Wow. So she returns to the site of, of her own serious illness and her near-death experience and her husband's death. And it's at this point that her story intertwines with that of another missionary family. Because in August 1895, a year after Andrew Flowers had passed away, a replacement had arrived in Trinidad, a man called Edwin Webster, who came with his wife Lucy and their daughter Mabel. Edwin was 33. Lucy was just 25. And they worked as a team. He did evangelism and conducted Bible studies. She created Sabbath schools for children. And together they co-wrote some of the reports from the island. The reports that get printed in church papers aren't printed just by, aren't public, authored just by Edwin. They're authored by Edwin and Lucy. So they're very much working as a team. This is, this is uh, news at its best. You know, this is yes. how the mission is going. Let everyone know. Right, right. But also, you know, it's... I'm sure there must have been many missionaries who relied on their wives, but didn't necessarily give them the credit when they wrote articles for church papers, whereas Edward and Lucy are very much a team. Hmm. In 1897, uh, January of 1897, Edwin wrote, I had the satisfaction of dedicating the Coover Church, the first Seventh-day Adventist church building in Trinidad. So this, of course, is where Andrew Flowers had started the work. So now they've dedicated the first church. But 10 months later, all three Websters contracted yellow fever. Lucy died in late November 1897, and her young daughter Mabel died in December. And because of the fear of contagion, Edwin could find no one willing to help him bury her. And George Enoch, who's a fellow missionary to the West Indies, writes back to one of the church papers and says, Little Mabel was put into her coffin and carried by her own bereaved father who was to sick the grave, himself, right? who was sick himself. But he had su- survived and was recovered sufficiently. This is what George Enoch writes. He'd recovered sufficiently to do what money could not hire others to do. So other people are terrified of contracting yellow fever. So here's the poor man himself still not well, has to put his little daughter in a coffin and carry her to the graveyard himself because nobody is willing even for money to, to do of it. Of course, we just had a COVID pandemic and, and right. we've seen that happen, uh, at least for a good portion of it, that you had loved ones die that you could not uh, bury. Or you couldn't attend the service at any rate. Or you visit could, them before they died. Right, right. You couldn't attend if you, there was no possibility of a funeral service. That's right. Yeah. Lucy, his wife, had spent just two years and three months in mission service before it killed her. But here's the thing. Remarkably, a year later, Rachel Flowers, the widow of the first missionary, and Edwin Webster were married. I think having each lost a spouse to disease in the Caribbean, they found consolation in each other. Yeah. And Edwin and Rachel then served in Trinidad until July 1900. 
Why only until then? Because they're suffering from ill health again. They're suffering from fevers. And so they return to the States where they regain their health, but that's the end of their missionary service. David, I'm, I'm seeing, obviously, the trend that we talked about. To what degree, knowing that you, that you might not be able to stay for decades, led to them discipling local leaders to, to do the work? Because do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, Let's yeah, say you know, yeah. both of us go to a place that you know, we need to provide that initial start of the mission there. Yeah. But we know that we might not make it even um, the next five years. Or the next two years. Or the next two years, for that matter. Yeah. Would that, I believe that would motivate us pretty much to develop local leaders as fast as possible who are more immune to these diseases um, to, to pick up the work. Do you think that was a factor or not really? That's a great question. I think a really excellent point that you've made, Sam. I, I'm sure that that's the case because we know that they did disciple local leaders um, local people start to do the work, and I'm sure you're right. We don't have any, I'm not aware of any direct evidence for that, but I'm sure it's a factor. I'm here for a limited time. I don't know how long I've got. I've got to do something to get things going. I can't assume that I will be here to do the, the work for the next few years myself. So I think that must be a factor in it. Okay. All right. So what happens next? In February 1900, David Caldwell Babcock who had already been widowed once, arrived with his second wife, Elmira, in Georgetown, British Guyana, today's country of Guyana. They were both 45 years old, and Elmira suffered from illness for much of their time in British Guyana. But another missionary, Albert Hazmer, reports she desired to remain at their post of duty as they felt that no change could avert a sad result. And she died in June, on June 20, 1901, after just 16 months' mission service. So this is the, the second wife of... The same Babcock that we talked about? Or? This is the Babcock we talked about on last week's episode. After he's been in Guyana, he goes with his third wife, Wilhelmina, known as Mina, to Sierra Leone and becomes the leader of the mission in West Africa for 12 years. And Babcock, David and Mina survive that, praise so, God. So let's think this through, right? You have David Babcock. He goes, his wife dies in mission, first wife. Yes. Then he comes back somehow convinces another woman, <laughs> no, work with me here. Look, let's get married. And then we're going to go to missions. And it, we're going to go to an even more dangerous place. It didn't end well for my first wife, but we're going to... Second you know, wife. His and, first wife had, had died, but not in missions. But not in missions. Right. Okay. So, yeah. My, my previous wife has died after just 16 months. Let's get married. Let's go as missionaries to a more dangerous place. Wow. And they do. The interesting thing is Babcock had initially been called in 1899 to lead the mission in Trinidad. Mm -hmm. But another missionary who had been in British Guyana had to leave because his wife was ill and he feared for her health. Now, who was that? And that's why Babcock ends up going to British Guyana. Who was that missionary who had to leave because his wife was going to die otherwise? It was Dudley Hale, who we also talked Ooh, about last week, yes, yes, who had yes. been a missionary to the Gold Coast in West Africa. Mm -hmm. He goes to Guyana, has to retreat, and then he accepts a call to go as a missionary to the Gold Coast in West Africa, today's country of Ghana. He accepts to go there again, despite the fact that he'd nearly died the first time. His colleagues had died or had to leave. Yeah, yeah. And now his wife has almost died in British Guyana. Okay. So the level of commitment these people, it's not just that they're reading in the review stories of missionaries dying. The people are doing that, and yet they're willing to volunteer. But here are people 
who themselves have lost a loved one, lost a loved one, or almost died, and they're willing to go again. And it's not a, it's not a plane that you take. You know, it, it's no, it's weeks on ships. And it's not so bad to the Caribbean. It would be a vo- from New Orleans or New but, York. But he decides to go back to. He decides to, to go back to, to West, West Africa. Coast, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So for him, it's a bigger commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, so you may wonder, seeing uh, Babcock goes to British Ghana, who does replace Edwin and Rachel Webster in Trinidad? And the answer is a man called Luther Crowther. Luther had been pastoring in the Dakota Conference in the United States, and remarkably, Sam, the Dakota Conference contributed to his salary in the West Indies. And this was not an uncommon thing in the first decade of the 20th century and, and even little beyond that American conferences said, we will not only encourage our members to give to missions, we ourselves will pay the salary of a missionary. And so you have the Iowa conference doing it, you have the Wisconsin, the Dec- a number of conferences pay the salaries of missionaries to China, and you've got the Dakota conference paying the salary of Luther Crowther, who's gone as a missionary to Trinidad. So the level of commitment to mission on behalf of the Adventist church in the 1890s and even more the early 1900s is, is just remarkable. We are seeing a, a new movement of, I think it's new. You tell me if I'm, if, if I'm observing something <laughs> that has already been happening for years. But uh, divisions and, and some unions being interested in doing exactly that. So not just relying on the general conference to send missionaries and sponsor them, but rather the division itself or some unions uh, sponsoring and sending missionaries to other parts of the world that need uh, that need help or that need missionaries to be present. That's right. It's not a new thing because it happened in the first decade of the 20th century, as, as I mentioned. But then it, it gradually faded out by World War II and it hadn't been done for decades. So it's not a completely new thing, but it's almost a We're new learning thing. from pioneers, as you said yeah, in and, previous episode. And it, it comes back partly to mission enthusiasm. And this has particularly been done by the South American division mm. and some unions, and I believe even some local churches in South America, are spon- some institutions mm-hmm. are sponsoring missionaries. But and yeah. so they're saying, in addition to the funds that the GC is putting in, we will fund this directly ourselves. And I think it's a fantastic thing. Dakota, the conference, had a responsibility for the tithe and offerings to take care of the mission in Dakota, right? Yes. But they decide, actually, no, our responsibility, our mission is to the world. Yes. And they sponsor missionaries to go. Absolutely. South America has the responsibility for South America and particular unions for that territory but they are looking beyond that territory and taking more responsibility than you know they're, they're, they're looked at to take and saying no we're actually going to send uh, people there and i've heard a report that they believe this is actually uh god is 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 giving back those resources yes manifold because of their focus elsewhere I think that's right. And there's the belief, you know, Ellen White talks about the reflex influence of mission work done in far off lands. She talks about that as being the key to success in homelands. Why is that? I think because the very essence of Christianity is that we look beyond ourselves. We go. We, yeah. Uh, Christianity is about looking beyond yourself. If you're only looking to taking care of yourself and your immediate family, that's not the essence of Christianity. So I think this is why, and, and we actually know that, um, from looking at regions that did sponsor missionaries and put a lot of and and where people church members put a lot of money into to mission, the church grew there. 
When Ellen White wrote this, there was there was skepticism when she wrote about the, the, the health of the, the work in the homeland depends on the reflex influence of work done in far off lands. There were people who basically say, we've got enough money to do the work in North America or elsewhere in the world, but, but not, not both. both. But actually, uh, empirically, we can show that Ellen White was right. <laughs> because it, it, the, Ellen White's argument makes no sense. Right. It is, it, from a logical face, perspective. Right. We've got we we've only got limited resources. We can do it here or we can do it there. We can't do it both. But empirically we can show that Ellen White was right. It's a rare example when you can by by science test the social science in this case. Yes. You can test the, the the proof of something written in the spirit of prophecy. That is exciting. Because and, and, and so it, it, it's the case, I think, and I'm sure that the Dakota Conference found that the money we put aside to pay for Luther Crowther in Trinidad w was returned to us by the generosity of our members and by the blessing of God. And it, it's happening, as you say, in other parts of the world, too, where they're sponsoring missionaries. We're not suffering in our own work as a result. And I think it is also a way of inspiring church members. I wonder if our unions or even conferences today would decide to set some 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 resources apart to to encourage their members and sponsor them to go to parts of the world that are in great need of church planting and I wish they would I wish it would happen more generally but you know it's it's not only in the what we might think of as the, the mission heartlands today of places like north and south america where the church has a lot of funds available um, the chinese union mission which itself is very much a mission field, mm -hmm. has sent Chinese missionaries to places where the Chinese diaspora is strong. So that's because they have that sense, the church is about giving and about mission, and we can't only be focused on our inward territory. Um, even the Middle East and North Africa, pardon me, Union Mission, um, has sent missionaries to a country which we won't name because it's in Central Asia, but it's an Islamic country. So they use the expertise that they've gained from working in the Middle and East, Middle East and North Africa to help another country. And yet the church in Middle East and North Africa is tiny. It doesn't have many resources. It doesn't have many yeah, resources yeah, yeah. and has a huge mission field itself. Why is it doing that? Because mission, Because the church is about mission. The church is never about just looking to my own local field. Beautiful. You've always got to look beyond yourself. And so that's what the Dakota Conference is doing when they pay for Luther Crowther to go to Trinidad. Trinidad today has a beautiful university. Yes, and, University and a, of the Southern Caribbean. And a strong church too. So, um, and, and now I'm, I'm a little curious. When we say West Indies, do we mean the English and French uh, speaking islands, or do we also mean the Spanish islands? No, we would include Cuba and the Dominican okay. Republic as well. So, All of that is the West Indies. Okay. So after Trinidad, what happens next? Well, unfortunately, we just need to finish with the story of Luther Crowther. He went with his wife, Laura, and their son, Raymond, and their daughter, Alpha. Um, and actually, some of their belongings never arrived because a Dutch ship transporting them sank. So they suffered from, from, from difficulties from the word go. For 16 months, Crowther worked quite successfully in Trinidad. In a letter to his former colleagues in the Dakota Conference, he vividly described his mission field using an analogy that they could appreciate. I'm going to quote, There is more vice, profanity, drunkenness, and general degradation within a block of our mission than you could easily gather together in all of Sioux Falls, which is, of course, the, a, a big town back in the Dakotas. More fights and arrests occur before our meeting hall than in any ward of your city. Yet our people live in the midst of this and live as close to the Lord as many in America. The truth has power to keep from sin if only we receive it. 
So why is Port of Spain so bad? Because it's a port. It's a it's a port. It's at the nexus of various shipping lines from North America to the Caribbean, from the Caribbean to South America, and and from ships go via Trinidad from America to Africa as well. And this is the time of pirates, right? This is no, this is pi- pirate pirates. There's no pirates there's left. No the, pirates. There's no pirates of the Caribbean they, anymore. They dealt with <laughs> those. It's done. But you know, <laughs> sailors are notoriously uh, when they get on shore are notoriously examples of morality. <laughs> no, <laughs> the exact and opposite. Restraint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the exact opposite. So I think that's why he's writing about you know Port of Spain in such a way. Remember, they arrived in December 1899, August 1901. Luther spoke during Sabbath school, but as Laura, his wife, wrote to a friend, he had to leave before it closed. He took to his bed and never got up again. He was treated by a doctor and two nurses who variously diagnosed jungle fever, whatever that is, and pernicious malaria. We don't really know exactly what ailed Luther, but it was lethal. He was sick for one week, and then he passed on away on August 25, 1901, having served as a missionary for just over 18 months. Laura had to make arrangements first for the funeral, had to bury her husband, and then she had to arrange for her return with her children to the United States. And she also wrote the obituary notice for her husband, which was published in the Review and Herald. And Sam, it has this formal Victorian language, but there's a hint of heartbreak. She concluded, we have laid him to rest till Jesus comes. He leaves a wife, one son, and one daughter. And obituaries of this period, they have that Victorian restraint, but you can penetrate beneath that to, really? to, to, mm-hmm. to get the hint of you know, what must actually be in her heart. And you asked about the other islands. Around this time, two American missionaries, Albert and Ida Fisher, were called to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico had just become an American colony. They'd taken it from Spain during the Spanish-American War, so now they want to start the work in Puerto Rico. They disembarked there in late May 1901. Less than nine months later, they both became seriously ill. After an illness of 35 days, Fisher died of typhoid fever in Mayaguez on March 23, 1902. He was just 30 years old. And we know that he suffered four or five severe hemorrhages, according to people who witnessed his illness. So if you can imagine being sick for that amount of time, suffering several hemorrhages, and then eventually dying, and he's just 30 years old. And Albert Hazmer, who was another missionary to the Caribbean, helped came to Puerto Rico and helped to nurse Fisher on his deathbed. And he, he wrote a report for the review, and he hints at the grief felt by the widow who did survive the fever. This is what Hazmer wrote. She knows, he's talking about Ida, Albert's wife. She knows that the Lord has made no mistake although she cannot see now why this blow has come. So that level of faith, again, that we've talked about, she knows that God has made no mistake, even though she can't understand why this blow has come. That level of faith, you know, it, wow, it's just humbling to me. Yeah. It's just humbling. As, as um, I had a friend who used to say, everything will work out in the end. And if it doesn't work out, it's not the end. So it's this idea that the world is very broken. But God has not given up on the world. Right. And, it, and, and God will put it together right. one day. This is also what Hazmer writes about Albert Fisher. He was afraid that many would think that he and his wife had made a mistake in coming to this field because he dies. Hazmer writes, Fisher wished me to express his strong belief that the Lord had sent them and to state that they did not regret the move they had taken. 
but that if the Lord should call him aside to rest a while, he was glad to be found at his post of duty. And then Hazmer concludes, who will step in and carry on the work begun? It, it seems and to that's, me. That pivot is at the heart of Adventist missionary work in this period in the face of incredible suffering and death. Send more people. Send uh, more people. We're dying here. That's why you need to send more people. Exactly. I'm dying. Our colleague is dying. Who's going to come? It seems to me, David, that they measured success not in terms of membership growth or new resources in the mission, which is always, you, you work, you know, you're the director of statistics. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, you need some KPIs here, some key performance <laughs> indicators of success. It yes. seems to me that when you are at the forefront, at the cutting edge of mission, you don't measure success in terms of new converts or in terms of, of other growth. It seems you measure success in terms of faithfulness. Yes, exactly. Are you faithful with all the resources that you do have? Yes. Uh, that seems to be how they measured their success for their mission. That's absolutely right, Sam. And it was the way Adventists measured success until relatively recently. Because the explosive growth that we see today in Inter-America and South America and Africa is all very recent. Even in South America and Inter-America, it starts in the late 1960s and the 70s. Right. So if you read reports given to old GC sessions, which I have in the course of my work and research, sure. what do the stories they tell? Today we tell stories and we say, we've had this many thousand baptisms. We've had this many hundred thousand baptisms. And to be honest, Sam, I find it becomes rather boastful. You know, such and such a division is the biggest division in the world. Is this not great Babylon that I have built is almost kind of the subtext to it. You know, or any other measure that they are better other than others. Measure, right. it could be. So what do they say in these old GC sessions? They tell stories of faithfulness. The story is, this is what they always say. Our membership is small, but our members are faithful. And they tell stories of members who've kept the Sabbath despite losing jobs or being persecuted. They tell stories of other types of faithfulness. And then they say, here is this huge mission field. There are this many people living in it. And we only have this many members. We need you to pray, we need you to give, and we need you to come. So the story is never boastful about this is what we've done. Mm -hmm, the story mm -hmm. is about faithfulness and about this is what is yet left to do. That is fascinating because you, you can be very faithful in the, in the, in the planting in the, when you plant the seeds and when you're harvesting. Yep. And those are two different periods with two different levels of results, but the same faithfulness. Amen. If you arrive somewhere that, that somebody has planted already and people are ready. You know, I, I remember my first church uh, where I was a senior pastor. Um, the previous pastor had already done planting for years. So even though in Europe where I was pastoring, the average church baptizes two people a year. Right. In that first year, we baptized 19 people. Wow simply because the work had already been done. Right. The, 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 the difficult planting and connecting, building relationships with secular people in London, all of a sudden there was somebody that was faithful in the harvesting. Right. And not just me, because pastors don't do much. The whole congregation decided, okay, now it's time to harvest. Let's be faithful with that. Mm. So mm. you've got these two phases and they look very different in their outcome, in their results, but the faithfulness is the same because if you are planting you can work for months and years and not see much yes 
you know, the, the seed is still on the ground. You yeah. look and there's nothing and, and, and you may die in that process and not see the shoot come up. Yes. But that would turn into a beautiful oak tree or whatever other tree that will provide those fruits. Yeah. So, yeah. And in Africa, Inter-America and South America, you can say the, the death, in a sense of martyrs, not because they were persecuted, but they're martyrs to the cause of mission. Sure. And we can say the death of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Yeah, and it grows. And today we have a, a, a vibrant uh, church in the West Indies that is largely responsible for the maintenance and the and the growth to some degree yeah. of European churches too. Yes, as that's they went right. Back to because the, the people have gone reverse immigration. People have gone back and 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 are sustaining the church in many countries in Europe. That's right. Do you have missionaries from Britain that go out of curiosity that goes to the West Indies at some point later? I'm sure. Yes. No, you've got missionaries, especially to Jamaica. Okay. Um, there are British missionaries who go there. And of course, British missionaries go to Africa. Mm -hmm. Even though we talked about American missionaries in West Africa last time, the people who really take on the work are the British missionaries who go in the early 20th century. So after that period of pioneer mission, though they too suffer, they too have many illnesses and deaths, but it's British missionaries who go and from the 20s and 30s really begin to see solid foundations laid for the growth that we see today in, in particularly in Ghana and Nigeria. David, thank you so much for these insights. Every one of these episodes, I learned a lot. So thank you for that. Well, I hope you learned a lot too. We thank you for watching. We hope you've enjoyed this program um, that has given you a glimpse of what we offer here at Adventist Review TV. If you're looking for answers of faith questions, interested in Adventist history, or you want something your children can watch without worry, then we encourage you to visit AdventistReview.tv. Our platform offers a range of programs that will nourish your soul through music, nature, and stories that showcase glimpses of God's handiwork. So that, um, what are you waiting for? Head over to AdventistReview.tv and start exploring our content today. Thank you for watching, and we hope to see you next week.